You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. You are my favorite song. Your love is justified. You play me all. Hey guys, welcome on in. This is doing it for Bartolo. Uh, my name is Julie, so there's no guest this week, which is, that's the first time in a while that we've kind of had no guest. I think since episode four or something, um, but no guest this week. And this was something that I kind of wanted to do more of, but we really got, uh, we got, a, we got kind of piled up a ton of guests. So there was kind of no room for me to do this, but uh, I wanted to kind of bring on more of my friends and just like talk about sports. Uh, and returning to the show, our first two-time guest is uh, my good friend from high school. Three-time guest, actually. You were on the Chase Serrano episode. <laughs> is uh, is my buddy uh, Taylor Weston. How's it going, Taylor? How we doing, folks? I'd like to uh, personally apologize for my appearance on the Shea Serrano episode, actually, because <laughs> I was a starstruck mess, and I stammered through almost everything I said. So hopefully this episode will be a little bit more successful, and I will provide more concise explanations of my hot takes <laughs> like when i read there was an itunes review <laughs> talking about the shea serrano episode and the <laughs> review specifically pointed to taylor's inability to put together a sentence while talking to shea which was hysterical i was i was absolutely skewered in the <laughs> the debut review of the podcast which was i'm not gonna lie it hurt but it was also uh, pretty hilarious to see because yeah. I, rem I remember when i was sitting through the recording of that, we were talking to Shay on the phone, and you would say something, and all I heard was, um, uh, um, uh, I was just so afraid that he wasn't going to like me. That's pretty much what it was. Are, are we sure that he doesn't not like you? I don't know. I mean, he he considers me police, so I, <laughs> I definitely have an uphill battle if I ever want to win his affections, but we'll see. Uh, anyways, maybe, maybe he'll listen in. Maybe he'll hear this. Who knows? Yeah, Shay Serrano, I've heard, is a uh, devout listener to doing it for Bartolo, like everybody who comes onto the podcast and everybody in the world should be. That's uh, a fact. Don't, don't bother checking it because it's true. <laughs> uh, this, obviously, we usually have some guests on to talk about journalism, but uh, today we're just going to kind of sh shoot the sh uh and talk about uh, pretty much whatever we want to talk about. Uh, obviously, we're both pretty big baseball fans. And uh, it, we're what now, like two and a half weeks into the season. And there have been some interesting storylines coming up. Uh, first and foremost has been Trevor Story, uh, who has obviously been playing shortstop for the Colorado Rockies in place of Jose Reyes uh, in light of that domestic violence suspension. And Trevor Story's basically been lighting the world on fire. Uh, he's been the Chris Shelton of this season uh, and is just... The stats are just like kind of unfathomable. Like if he was, if this was playing out over the course, if you look at the projected stats that ESPN has over like 162 games, right now on the pace Trevor Story is hitting, he would have 93 home runs, 162 RBIs, and uh, and be hitting 304, 333, 839 with 23 doubles and 23 tri triples, which is like 93 homers. That pace is just like insane. Um, but the most interesting part about him is just like. He was never a top prospect. He was never a top 100 guy. And so baseball is always kind of interesting in that you'll always see like the, the prospects uh, and the young players who kind of slip through the cracks and are able to strike it big. But this kind, even, even, if, even if this is a completely unsustainable pace for Trevor Story, 
it's super interesting and super fun to just have somebody come out of nowhere uh, and be this uh, guy who captures the attention of the national baseball audience. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it's also crazy that just like, because obviously the, as far as the crazy stats go, it's not like he's hitting like 450 or anything. It seems like every time he gets a hit, it's either a double or a home run. And he's just generating this wacky power. Where like at first it was kind of this consideration if you were like a fantasy player, like, oh, maybe I pick up this Trevor Story guy, but I guess Jose Reyes is coming back. Where now it's like, does Jose Reyes have a job when he comes back? Which is odd, because like putting domestic violence aside, which can't you can't really, but if you just consider Jose Reyes in a vacuum and you consider him as a player, he's a he's a player who has a track record for being probably at least now, like a, a top 15 shortstop in baseball, he used to be a top five shortstop. Um, yeah. But he's obviously getting older and the speed's, uh, the speed's declining. But now you wonder, like, does, does is Jose Reyes even going to have a job? Because Trevor Story has 17 hits right now, and eight of them have been home runs, which yeah. is obviously a completely unsustainable pace of, of hitting bombs, even in, even in a place like Coors Field. But for me, it's always fun for me to, like, see these April stories – emerge out of nowhere because uh, I remember I think it was in 2005 or 2006 Chris Shelton for the for the Tigers who I mentioned briefly earlier uh, he he was basically Miguel Cabrera in the first month he hit like 13 home runs and was like hitting 350 and people were wondering like oh is Chris Shelton like the next big star like is he is he going to sustain this pace and then he kind of fell off the rest of the season and was in was back in the minor leagues by the end of August yeah and well that's probably not going to happen obviously we could both say with story, I think he's going to be a major leaguer probably for, I mean, for the rest of this year, certainly. But I mean, he's a young enough guy that we can, we can probably project that he's not going to just like lose it all. But right. for a guy who plays 81 games a year in a place like Coors Field, you, you kind of have to make the consideration that maybe that type of power is going to do you more than the speed and the defense that Reyes is going to bring you. That that known commodity that Reyes is going to bring you versus this like this crazy run production potential. Right. And I think that whole the whole left side of the infield was super fascinating with Tulowitzki and uh and uh the third baseman over there. His name is slipping my mind. Arenado. Yes, yeah, Nolan Arenado. Um Arenado I think is an absolute stud and is probably oh, yeah. He's a tw- top 25 player in baseball, especially uh, with his power numbers inflated by being at, at, at Coors. But um, I think that's a really good point. The fact that you are in Coors Field and, you know, Trevor Story, if he hits more home runs, that's like that's infinitely more valuable than a guy whose speed is declining. And that's kind of his big asset. And speed in general is just kind of an interesting asset as a whole in baseball when it comes to long term contracts. Because if you look at the contract that, that Jacoby Ellsbury signed, a lot of Ellsbury's value was kind of pinned on his ability to be a dynamic guy in the base paths and uh-huh. using his speed as an outfielder because Ellsbury just naturally isn't the greatest center fielder, but he was able to make up for kind of his, his shortcomings by using his speed to get to a lot of baseballs. And now that that speed is kind of starting to slip away from him, uh, you know, his, his Ellsbury's stolen bases numbers have, have declined over the last three years. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, speed is just as an asset itself in baseball is, is always fleeting. And it's the kind of the first thing that always goes away first uh, when it comes to baseball players, uh, unless you're Ichiro and you're just like forever uh, a god. Yeah, which makes sense physically. And I, I know all too well um, the struggles of Ellsbury, particularly offensively. I 
like he went from being a guy who could get 40 steals to a guy who like maybe he'll get 20 now which is kind of crazy um yeah and just ellsbury as like ellsbury as a whole i think is just like a very interesting case study as a player just because he had that one year uh where he was he hit 35 home runs or something like that he was basically yeah his mvp year that wasn't right right right, the, the year that justin verlander won the mvp and ellsbury basically put up what is a typical Mike Trout season, which is insane. Cause I remember as a Red Sox fan, like I remember watching Ellsbury that year and being like, Holy crap, this is like one of the best seasons of baseball. I've ever seen any player put together of guys is stealing 40 bases is driving in a hundred runs from like the leadoff spot and is hitting 30, 30, uh, 30 home runs. Like that's insane. Yeah. And the fact that Mike Trout does that every year is, is crazier. But, um, I just like never really understood that Ellsbury signing to begin with. Like I, I yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely a panic move by the Yankees. Like, they needed to get one of the stars on the open market, not only to improve the roster, which was in pathetic dire need, but also to be the Yankees about it and to make a splash that they could talk about. Which is interesting because, like, the Yankees in the last two off-seasons have really kind of taken a step back in terms of spending a ton of money in the off-season. Like, they were the only team this past year to not sign a free agent. Uh, and yeah. although they got Oroldis Chapman, which is, of course, like a big ticket acquisition, yeah. uh, not going out and signing somebody and, and giving them just basically a blank check is very un-Yankees-like. Uh, yeah. And I'm kind of interested to see, like, is that something that is a philosophical evolution of Brian Cashman, or is that something that's that's kind of coming out of the circumstances of where the Yankees are and that they just have a ton of old players that cost a ton of money, or... It, I mean, it's probably somewhere in between, I would assume. Yeah, I would guess that it's far more of the latter, which is that they have too many old contracts. And I think they just, I think they're looking years down the road and saying, we've got Harper, who's eventually going to test free agency. And we've got guys like Trout, who are eventually going to test free agency. And we're the Yankees, and we're going to try to hit those guys with the biggest contract ever dreamed of. Just trump a contract at Harper. Because I think, like, when Trump, uh, not when Trump, <laughs> <laughs> but when, uh, when, when Harper eventually hits the free agent market, uh, he's going he's gonna to get, like, a $50 million a year contract. Like, Absolutely. It's, and it's going to be insane. Because um, Harper, as long as he stays healthy, he's probably – He's 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 a more he's he's probably one of the most dynamic play, baseball players that we'll ever see. Yeah, because sure. that combination of power uh, and just like raw speed and just like talent overall as a hitter, that's it's it's no, those numbers are, are is stuff that like Barry Bonds was putting up as as a young as as a youngster before heading over to the Giants and starting before he started to inject himself with who knows what. Like, well, you know. We know my uh, my <laughs> spiel on on injecting and things like that, but we'll I'll digress on that for now and say that I think the most amazing thing about Harper is that he's been around for so long that we forget that is he even twenty three yet? He's twenty three now, right? Right. Yeah. Turning twenty four, like that's crazy. It's insane. He's not even in his prime for baseball players. Because sometimes we forget, like, being fans of every sport that, like, the baseball prime is kind of late. Like, 
he's nowhere near that like 27 to 30 year old prime and he's already a top five player in the league which is nuts like and that that's what makes me so excited about a guy like trout uh and harper but harper especially like i think with mike trout i think what you get now it's hard to like kind of get better from what you're getting from trout i think because yeah it's it's kind of weird to say but as like a 24 year old like he's kind of he's kind of is where he is and the only thing he's going to lose from here on out is speed which isn't like necessarily a terrible thing but he's still going to be like a 30 homers a year hitting 310 uh yeah. and is going to be one of the most dynamic players in baseball for me i think the ceiling for harper is just it's unimaginable like i just yeah. i can't even imagine where this guy can go just because if you think back to a year ago with harper prior to the 2015 season people were saying that he was probably the most overrated player in baseball which was unfair to him in many regards just because because he was so young he was so a he was so young and people forgot that he was on the cover of sports illustrated when he was 16 and he's kind of undergoing the same kind of scrutiny that lebron james was going through early in his career and that you know harper was harper was in our lexicon within baseball fans especially within dire baseball fans for you know, a good. He's been in our lives for seven years now, which yeah. is nuts. It's insane because he's only twenty three years old, and uh, people they were selling they were selling Bryce Harper jerseys the second he got drafted. Like I was able to go on eBay the year uh, he got drafted, a couple months after, and buy yeah. a Bryce Harper number thirty four Nationals jersey. Two years, uh, or basically, I mean, basically like a year before he got to the major leagues. And how many players can you say that about? Yeah, um, I think it's also interesting to think that his teammate Strasburg was the same case too. And if you think of the two now and like where they are in the zeitgeist, like it's Harper, not even close. Strasburg is is a crumb in Harper's shadow now, which is nuts. Part of that because of injury, I guess people are kind of afraid to still have him. And also part of that is because proportionately, like. Strasburg is not performing the way Harper is, but right. to I think mean, that Harper's fame has been sustained at such a level for so long and he's still so young, it's, it's unbelievable. Because the thing with Strasburg is like we, everybody I think expected him to be like a top five pitcher in baseball and mm-hmm. he hasn't been a top five pitcher. He's probably been a top 15, top 20 pitcher uh, yeah. in terms of the numbers he's putting up, which isn't, especially for a number one draft pick, like you don't, you don't ever really know what you're getting out of a baseball draft pick. Like, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Mike Piazza was drafted near the end of the draft, Albert Pujols. Like, there was tons of guys that you just kind of never expected to, to come out of anywhere and, and be stars in baseball, whereas, like, there's a ton of first-round busts every single year in baseball, yeah. uh, more so than in any other sport. And so Strasburg has 100,000%, I think, been worth the number one pick that the Nationals spent on him. Has he been a top-five pitcher in baseball that people expected him to be? Like, kind of the pipe dream, if Mark Pryor was never injured kind of pitcher? Probably not. Uh but the thing is, Strasburg's still only 27. Like, he's starting to hit his prime now. He's off to a pretty decent, pretty good start this season with two, uh, he's in two stars, has a 1.84 ERA as of, as of taping. And I think he's, he's starting tonight. So that number's either gonna, to, is could going go to go up. <laughs> could go up or could go down. Um, but the thing with Harper, again, is just that his prime's not gonna be for like another four years. Yeah. And I could, it's it's kind of ludicrous to think of this post steroid era, but he could hit fifty homers. Like that's that's like that's in that's like in play with him. Oh yeah, it's totally. I mean, it's, he's just got to have like 
the right month, I think, to make that happen. Like, you just got to have like one wacky month, one story month. Which is 100% possible. I mean, like, if you look at his stat line from last year, he hit 330 with a 460 OBP, 649 slugging, 9.9 wins above replacement, 42 homers and 99 RBIs, 38 doubles. That's not a line that you – that like, offense has been down across baseball. Like, if you if you could, like, inflate those numbers to the steroid era or or just – just compare it across generations. Like that's those are lines that like Ted Williams and Barry Bonds and the greats put up, and that and Bryce Harper did it at twenty two years old. Well, also important to note that with forty two home runs, he only had ninety nine RBIs, which is crazy. Yeah, like the like he's not getting a whole lot of help on puffing up his stats in terms of who's batting in front of him. It seems. I too. mean, like. I mean, Ian Desmond struggled last year. Danny Espinosa struggled last year. There was not like everybody that people expected to be his. Uh, and Ryan Zimmer, Zimmerman was injured for a lot of the year. Everybody that people expected to be the the core around yeah, Harper yeah. was just not there, and yeah. and they didn't perform. And well, yeah, the Nationals were kind of a mess last year. For, we're seeing this year for for a variety of reasons, and I'm actually yeah. like. When I go to D.C. this summer, um, I'm super interested to be following the Nationals on a daily basis just because that team is just so interesting on a number of levels. Um, there, was a, there, was a, there was a gift that came out. Um, Harper had hit a home run, and Jonathan Papelbon was like giving Harper like the most enthusiastic high-five possible, which is obviously the complete opposite image of Papelbon choking Harper last year. Yeah. Yeah, Papelbon is a... Uh... Bit of a hothead, I think we can say he's kind of a kind of a wacky guy. But yeah, they are, they're, they're a very interesting team, and it's funny because they have like, they have such a studly staff of pitchers. At least after, by name. Yeah, by name. But I mean, also like to have Strasburg. Like any team's happy to have Strasburg as the two. You know. I mean, Scherzer's a great Scherzer, number. Yeah, Scherzer, Scherzer. Like we know what we're gonna get with him. Like, just a strikeout machine who like. He's not gonna shut out the other team every time, but he's really not gonna not put up a quality start. Generally, you can bet on a quality start. And then Joe Ross is coming out on fire. The thing, the thing that's really funny about Scherzer last year, and this kind of speaks to how good the pitching was in the National League, was that he came really close twice to pitching perfect games, and he was still like barely in consideration for the Cy Young Award. And his season was really good last year. Uh, on top of that, like. Yeah, Scherzer put up a it put up seven wins above replacement last year, uh, and a two point seven nine ERA and an zero point nine two WHIP, and he was barely in consideration for the Cy Young, which is like kind of yeah. that's kind of a uh, that kind of speaks to how great the pitching is in the National League. Yeah, yeah, I mean the pitch. Yeah, it's funny because usually the uh, the thing about the National League that, or at least I say as like an AL cynic, but a lot of people share the opinion is that it's easier because you get to pitch against pitchers. But, like, there is an abundance of top-of-the-line pitching talent with Jose Fernandez, DeGrom, Syndergaard. And that's only considering the, the young guys right now, too. Staff, if you think about it, like, Gio Gonzalez is no slouch either. Yeah. Which is, like, if you just look... If you look at the leaderboard for the National League last year in terms of pitchers, you got Greinke, who was insanely good last year and has struggled out of the gate in... Arizona so far this year. Uh, he's a 6.75 ERA yeah. through, through three starts. Obviously, yeah. small sample size. Well, their whole staff has struggled too, though. But Jer- Shelby, Jake- Miller was, Shelby Miller melted down in his last start that I looked at. 
But holy crap, Jake Arrieta has been unbelievable again, like out of the game oh, this yeah. year. He's so like Arrieta is able to mix his pitches like almost nobody I've ever ever seen. Like his his he's able to mix this like fastball changeup slurve combination, and he you just like don't know what's coming because he can spot every single one of them. Yeah, and he's just able to manipulate the strike zone just like nobody's business. Yeah, his slurve control is wacky to watch, but also he's he's one of those rare guys where like. If I see a score, like, if I see a Cubs game where they're losing early on, like, it's, like, one to nothing to three to nothing, and Arietta is pitching, I'm shocked that he's given up any runs. Uh, are you going to be going to any games in the uh, early part of the season, So in, in the early part of the season? <clears throat> I am. I am going to a um, Red Sox-Yankees game in New York, May 8th. Well, you should use SeatGeek. In order to get those tickets, if you've ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online, most sites will make it really complicated and then try to sneak in these huge fees at checkout. Uh, and that's why you need to try Seeky. They made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. Seeky is the only place I ever go to look for tickets to a game or concert. And I'm sure Taylor's going to use them to buy his Red Sox Yankees tickets. Uh, Check it out now. In, in May. Uh, I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I just used it the other day to look up for tickets when I'm in D.C. this summer uh, watching the Nationals. SeatGeek has taken out all the work and hassle for shopping for tickets. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place, so you save time and never miss a deal. And you can set alerts for upcoming games, and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every single ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on its value, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price of the ticket you're about to buy, and unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkouts. Listeners to Doing It For Bartolo can get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase, so in order to get your $20 rebate, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter promo code BARTOLO, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase, so make sure to... Go download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Bartolo today and support SeatGeek because they're supporting the show. Um, but yeah, like, I'm going to go... B-A-R-T-O-L-O. B-A-R-T-O-L-O. And I'm going to use SeatGeek to, to go find tickets to see Scherzer this summer. I mean, go go see go see Strasburg this summer. Like, the amount... Or, or the young boy Joe Ross. I mean, just the oh, amount... Just the amount of, like, young pitching in the National League is just insane right now. Like, you look at a guy like Carlos Martinez, he's he's an absolute stun, and he's flying under the radar because you have guys like Garrett Cole and Fernandez and the entire Mets rotation just overshadowing him. Um, but the amount of talent just in general in the National League is just nuts. Yeah, that's true. And unfortunately for uh, fans like ourselves of the Red Sox and Yankees, no such luck with young pitching. I'm telling you, man, Clay Buchholz is probably the most frustrating like baseball player or just like athlete in general that I've ever followed in my life. You know, you also know my spiel on Buchholz. If if anyone listening wants to go check uh, check the old Twitter archives, June and I have discussed Clay Buchholz before. Just search um, at I am June Lee at Sinerte Buchholz, and you'll find some funny conversations. Where uh, I've been a Buckholz skeptic for a very long time. Red Sox fans, you know, a little more optimistic than I tend to and be, and rightfully so, because like Red Sox fans, bias. It's easy. It's easy to look overlook things. But the thing with Buckholz is that 
you see, like, if you've watched Clay Buckles for an extended period of time, you have seen the brilliance. Like, you've seen him be a top-of-the-rotation starter, and then you've also seen him be, like, one of the worst, most frustrating pitchers in baseball to watch. And on top of that, you have the injuries where you just, like, don't know what you're getting on a year-to-year basis. Well, yeah, as, as a Yankees fan, my mouth waters to see Buckholz coming up in the box score because I know that it can produce one of those games where he walks five guys in the first three innings and the game's just over. Like, that's just beautiful to me. It's just a beautiful, chaotic meltdown some of the time, half of the time, really. And I think it's interesting when, like, considering the, the temperature around Red Sox fans is that with Buckholz, people have, like, have been optimistic about how good he's going to be since he like since he threw that first no hitter at 20 22 23 years old and rightfully so when he came up he had this electric stuff this curveball that was just beautiful uh but he's not he's 30 years old now there's no chance that he's going to fulfill that ace potential that people thought he was going to have when like he was he was in discussions for the trade to, for Johan Santana yeah. back in the old days when Johan Santana was basically the greatest pitcher on the planet. Yeah. And and he hasn't fulfilled that potential at all, but God, Buckles is so frustrating. He's just yeah. he's just the inconsistency is the worst part. Like I would I would rather know if you are I would rather have a pitcher who I just know is good or terrible than someone who I just like don't know anything. Like I would I would I would take the bad pitcher or the, the bottom of the rotation pitcher five days out of the week than the guy who is either going to be a number two starter half the time. Yeah. A number Just like a guy, a guy who's going to give up five runs every game, but you're ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think that there's kind of a similar struggle for Yank. Well, for Yankees fans last year with like the entire rotation besides Tanaka. But I think our kind of Buckholtzy guy is Michael Pineda. Yeah. Where it's just like it's a different type of struggle where he doesn't really get out of control with his command. Like he stays in the strike zone, but he just has some games where he just hangs his slider. Everything. Yeah. Over and over. And And you you, just know he's going to give up bombs. And you see like the raw stuff with Pineda because he's got some of the best stuff in baseball. And you saw it his rookie year with Seattle in 2011 uh, where he – was able to like pinpoint like a 98 mile per hour fastball and then through this like he he was able to to crack off like one of the best sliders in baseball and then he kind of fell off in the second half of the season like he made the all-star team in 2011 and then fell off and then he got traded to the Yankees um but I mean I I it's a it's a similar sort of struggle um luckily for Yankees fans that trade just kind of fleshed out as an objective win because (laughs) Miguel Montero or, Jesus Montero. Uh, oh, Jesus Montero. My bad. Sorry. Thinking of a different uh, tubby guy. Uh, <laughs> the catcher <laughs> just the started cast. gaining weight at an, an unprecedented weight at rate, not weight, excuse me, and uh, fell right out of the league. And then he lost a ton of weight for Seattle, too. Uh, yeah. Before, but he never, I mean, he never really did he, anything. Yeah, he never fulfilled his potential. Uh, and he was beat up by my guy, Deho Lee. Uh, during spring training for that first place <laughs> platoon job, and Deho has been uh, has been getting some popularity with the Mariners fans. He hits he hits like these moonshots that are just like you just like kind of laugh because yeah, just the upswing. Because he's got such a he's got such an uppercut swing, and so when he gets a hold of a baseball, it just like goes up and up and up and up. 
yeah. and it's probably, he's probably he's definitely not the best hit for Safeco Field because Safeco is huge and is not a home run hitter park at all. Um, but that walk off home run he had was just demolished. Like it was so it was just crushed. Um, yeah. It's been interesting to see like him in Byungo Park. Byungo Park has has kind of struggled out of the game with Minnesota, but he's he, he's had a couple of moonshots. Uh, yeah, another one today. Yeah, he's got four homers, five RBIs, and saying two twenty uh, two thirty three. The Twins are an interesting story just because like people expected them to be this team on the rise with Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano and this like really great core of young guys. Uh, but just touching on Park again, like. I'm very interested to see how Major League Baseball starts to shift its perception of Korean baseball players as a whole. Just because uh, if you look at the Cardinals, they've got the guy uh, Sung Hwan Oh, the reliever, who's been – there was an article on Fangraphs a couple, day, uh, a couple of days ago by August Fagerstrom. And he wrote an article how, how Oh has been basically like one of the best relief pitchers in baseball uh, so far in, in six innings. A very, very small sample size. Uh but if this if if this sort of success is is sustained, um, you'll have Jungle Gong, which is he was one of the best rookies in baseball last year and one of the, probably top ten, fifteen shortstop. Uh, yeah. If if Deho Lee and Byungo Park keep hitting moonshots, like there's a job for people who hit twenty home runs a year, even if they don't hit for a high average. And if you get Sung Wan Oh, who's another pitcher, um, on top of Hyunjin Ryu, who is successful this time in a relief capacity. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the perception of that is sort of shifted. And I, although I think kind of the a lot of the top talent in the KBO has been uh, siphoned off to the major leagues over the last couple of years, uh, it'll be interesting to see. I think there's much more of a perception of, hey, I think if you get a guy over from Japan, it's much more of a sure thing. And I think that perception is going to start to shift as we see more and more Korean baseball players come over. Yeah. I think uh, two things. One... I don't think I would know anything about Korean baseball players if I follow you on Twitter. And two, it really sucked to see Kong or for all of our Caucasian listeners, Kang is probably how you've been pronouncing it <laughs> for now, um, get taken out by a, a suspect slide last year when he was such a fun player to watch. And that, that whole rule has been like super interesting as well because it's produced like these really, really weird instant replay situations where – the neighborhood plays like completely out now, yeah. which is kind of odd. Um, but you see like these very like weird instant replays where like you'll see a subtle movement of like the guy raising his leg or raising his yeah, arm we just a little had bit. Socks game the other day, actually. If you were watching, where um, I forget who it was. I think it was Jackie Bradley. Well, no, there was someone on Toronto where they uh, he bent down and touched the bag with the tip of his knee. Oh yeah, Darwin Barney did yeah, that. Yeah, Darwin Barney turned turned. Well, he didn't actually turn the double play. I think no, I no, they they overturned it. Oh okay. Yeah. But yeah, but it was a that was a wild one because it's funny to see like it's funny that in one year something that's been just like a mainstay of the baseball rules can just kind of get erased, and I I think it's good in the way that like a a bad instance like that opened the dialogue so quickly. But at the same time, it feels kind of like a knee-jerk for the most horrible unintentional pun ever. Because obvi- obviously yeah. you don't want to have like Chase Utley just rolling people over like he did yeah. uh, in the playoffs last year against the Mets uh, and breaking people's legs. That's obviously not what we want. But yeah. it's also interesting to see like the conflation of, of the, rule, the rule change and uh, 
the use of instant replay and how it creates the situations where I'm just like slamming my head against the keyboard yeah. where it's just like, I, I just like absolutely hate seeing it. Yeah. It's like, does baseball need to be slower? Right. <laughs> not that, not that I'm someone who thinks baseball is too slow, but you know what I mean? For the general viewership, you don't want to watch a challenge. Like you don't want to watch a challenge every single game, which is kind of the case now. Like I generally, depending on like my work, my my homework load, I watch at least the Red Sox game, and then I try to catch. Um, I I kind of hop around MLB TV. I see, I usually see a bunch of the Dodgers game, if especially if Vince Scully is calling the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually check check out a bunch of the Dodgers, and uh, I try to bounce around baseball, and it's just. I love baseball and I watch a ton of it, but the instant replay and all this picking out the nitty gritty stuff is just so annoying because what it should be used for is, is, is like these bang bang plays at home or at first base. Yeah. Uh, and what it is being used for is like, is looking at the minutia of, did he barely scrape the bag or did he, did he, did the guy like slide past the bag and then raise his arm a little bit and then was tagged while his yeah. arm was raised while he was a little bit off the bag? And it's, it's just super, super annoying. It, and it yeah. just, it kind of sucks. It goes against, I think, the integrity of instant replay. Um, and I think people imagined it as how kind of instant replay is used in football and that it's not really used to pick out the, the minutia, minutia, but it's kind of used to look at, did the guy drop the ball or did the guy's knee hit the ground? Yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's such a new development that they haven't figured out how to use it to its maximum potential yet, but it's like, please figure out. So <laughs> it does not compromise our enjoyment of the game. Uh, something that I think is also interesting in terms of just like tape and how we have so much access to game tape is the NFL draft. Uh, yeah. And how, <laughs> Uh, people are so prone to overanalyzing things and especially with the quarterback position. And that's especially true with this year's draft with, with the Rams going after uh, the number one draft pick uh, for, I think a number of reasons and whether they're justified or not, we can talk about later, but they're obviously going up to get a quarterback. Yeah. Uh, And Jared Goff and Carson Wentz are the number one and the number two guys uh, in whatever order you want to put them in. Cause that's kind of a, for debate as well and i don't think anyone knows what the order is i think that's the problem right uh there is a select group of people i think that are in football front offices and a very small group of people who watch a ton of college football in the media who are able to make this judgment about is carson once going to be a good player in the nfl uh because he's playing at an fcs level which is for north dakota state and obviously north dakota state is a really 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 high class Division 1A uh, football program. Uh But that level of competition is obviously lower than what Jared Goff is facing. But is Jared Goff, you know, going to be a superstar? Like, I have no idea. Uh, And it it would probably be – I just don't watch – A, watch enough college football and B, know what I'm watching to make these sort of broad statements about about their quarterback play and whether or not they deserve to be the number one pick – I mean, what do you what do you think about that? Well, it's such a bizarre, and you kind of touched on this opening up this topic. It's such a bizarre system where, like, there is so much information accessible. There's so much tape. There's so much made about it 
we've got Gruden camp where we get to see every single draft eligible quarterback pretty much that has a recognizable name do like an hour long segment with John Gruden just like shooting the shit and also talking about how good they think they are. And then at the end of the day, it seems like nobody really knows anything. And I think, you know, you say like Wentz, yeah, playing at an FCS level, I think you can kind of point to a guy like Joe Flacco, who I know, like, very polarizing figure. Is Joe Flacco elite? (laughs) I think we can say Joe Flacco is not elite. However, already on the decline, kind of, I guess, I don't know, team's kind of a mess, but a guy who went to Delaware, played against what we would call an inferior level of competition, and really, I mean, he was picked, was he picked seventh, I think, in his draft, something like that, close enough? 18th. Eight, oh, 18th. Yeah. Really? Wow. Okay. So a little better of a draft position. But still, first round pick from an, I think Delaware is FCS, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. And he won a Super Bowl. And he's been, by all accounts, a good NFL quarterback. And he probably goes close to the top of that draft if it's redrafted. Oh, for sure. And I think, like, you kind of got to think at this point in the NFL, you're making a pretty solid investment spending a first round pick on a quarterback who's just not a bust, who can just be, like, solid, you know? And I think Joe Flacco is kind of that solid guy who we can kind of shoot for where, like, you don't know what you're going to get, but if you can at least get that, I think the first-round pick might be worth it. However, I will say that I don't think it's worth it in this particular case because the Rams gave up the future for it. They apparently learned nothing from the Redskins trade that they just benefited benefited from and then trolled the Redskins about on the field. And then they went and, and I mean, I guess like, yeah, you're moving to L.A. You've got to make a splash so you can activate the new market. But come on, like, if this doesn't pay off, you've got just you've a the, mess you of set a the team set, for the you, next five years. I mean, years. you've set the franchise back another five years. Yeah, exactly. You have to hit on this draft pick. Yeah, and there's no way of going about it or saying it any other way. If you if Jared Goff or Carson Wentz is a bust, your franchise is screwed. Yeah, they're they're pretty much sunk for the next five or six years. If, and you're just wasting. And you're wasting I mean, the you're wasting the the prime of Todd Gurley, which yeah. would suck cause yeah, Gurley, because Gurley Gurley's a generational type running back talent. And let's face it, he really only has. I think we can say with some certainty, as unfortunate as it is to say that it's kind of come to this in the NFL, he's probably got like five eight years? years max, five years likely of playing at a real five, five years at like a prime, prime level. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can't consider like Agent Peterson as a barometer for this because Agent Peterson is a yeah, superhuman. He, he's kind of the unicorn of the modern NFL in that respect. But you just – you can't expect a player to do that and if – if the Rams just aren't successful at this pick, you're losing your first round. It's kind of similar to what the Nets have done in that by trading away a ton of stuff for Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce, they don't have a first round pick for the next three years. And Which what can in you do? hindsight seems like the most ridiculous thing ever. But at the time, people were like pumped about Brooklyn and everyone's like, oh, Brooklyn's going to be like – that contender team now, like the market's well, activated. A lot of that was was the fact that it was just a ton of big names. It was Brooke yeah. Lopez, it was Joe Johnson, it was Garnett Pierce, and Jason Kidd as the coach. Yeah. And 
you all know how that went. <laughs> and in actuality, when that talent was realized on the basketball court, like they were all just really old except for Joe Johnson. Uh, and Brooke Lopez was too injured. Uh, and, and Joe Johnson was too expensive, really. Too expensive. And Jason that. Kidd just wasn't a good enough coach to manage all of those people. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and he kind of proved that he didn't want to be there in the capacity he was there, and he wanted more control of the team. And now here he is doing the weirdest basketball things we've seen in a while in Milwaukee with a team of six foot seven guys, <laughs> one through five. Uh, that Milwaukee team is fascinating for a number of reasons. Number one, I am like, I am the biggest Giannis Antetokounmpo fan on the planet because oh, yeah. this dude is a seven foot one listed at six eleven, but he's seven foot one now and he's playing point guard. Yeah. I can't wait to see that next year in a full capacity when they really start rolling him out as a point guard because I think for me ever since I was emotionally damaged by the Celtics losing to the Lakers and Kendrick Perkins tearing his ACL I haven't really been able to like love basketball and truly been into it but what gets me going in basketball is overseas players and Giannis is like the freakiest coolest overseas player that we've gotten Boban and Chris Dobbs. <laughs> and Boban, yeah. <laughs> Boban is like such an under he's he's almost just like a Twitter phenomenon, but he's he completely like, underutilized in I know. Se- like in well, San they Antonio. Gotta, like, I mean, on a pop team, they're not gonna like roll out the big free like it mean like it's too high stakes. But if they figure out how to use him in some sort of meaningful capacity, which well, he's gonna be if anyone's gonna he's do gonna, it, he's gonna be a free agent after the season. And so Well, yeah, if you you'd kind of think that they're gonna keep his his price isn't gonna be that high, you don't think. I'm actually kind of interested to see where it is because he's he's a physical freak. Like the size yeah. of his hands are ridiculous. He's seven foot three. He's pretty mobile, uh, and he's not like a he's not he's not a lug of a center. Um, yeah, my inclination would be to presume that any team that's going to kind of outbid for him is probably a team overpa- that would be able to. Yeah, is well, overpaying for him number one probably. Overpaying for him number one, but if they're in a position to overpay, they're probably not a team that has the infrastructure to actually turn him into a good player, which right. would be a real shame. Right. I'd like to see him stay with the Spurs. Because if you look at his stat line, it's five and a half points, 3.6 rebounds, uh, half a block a game, and nine and, and, and a half minutes, basically. But yeah. the player efficiency <laughs> rating is 27.7, which is well, like... Those, those stats, if you if you extrapolate that to starter stats, those are very good stats. That's like, right. what, like 16 points? I didn't hear the rebounds. How many rebounds? Well, so if, if you do it... Over the course of 40, 40 minutes a game, it's basically 23.4 points, 15.3 rebounds, 7.7 assists. Yeah, so if we're, if we're <laughs> extrapolating him to being a playoff starter type thing. Yeah, uh, which obviously, like, if you give him more minutes, he might not necessarily... Oh, I mean, and he, certain, he almost certainly wouldn't. Yeah, but he's 27 it's years still, old. It's not like he's a young project. Yeah, it's something that you want to see, though. Yeah. Because, you know, like, I mean, you know... You're not exactly like an old dog at 27. He can, but and go- I mean, if if Pop has tolerated it, you've got to think that there's something there, right. you know. Unless this, unless this is his peak, maybe he's maximized at his five points per game. Who knows? But, but even then, it's a it's a fascinating role player to have. But I'm Giannis is like is is one of my favorite players in the NBA just because like his athleticism is just so insane and so off the charts, and how he's able to basically go across the court in six steps. Like that's nuts. Oh, yeah, his his euro step dunks from the three point line are unbelievable. Yeah, um, but this dude is seven seven foot one. Uh, 
uh, and he's he's got he was playing small forward with for the Bucks for the for the early part of his career, and mm-hmm. you know Kidd moved him in the last month month and a half to the point guard position, uh, and if you look at his stats uh, in April, twenty point seven points per game, uh, he's hitting he's he's got seven point one assists per game, nine point one rebounds. He's hitting 45% from three and 52% uh, from the field. Uh, yeah, that's in that's April absurdity. in seven games. March March was almost equally insane. 18 points per game, seven rebounds. Uh, and the assist totals uh, were also at 7.2 per game. Yeah. he's. And those are like LeBron-esque stats, really. It's more than that. Yeah. It's more than that, which is nuts. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even I hadn't even heard those numbers. I kind of just assumed in my own pessimism because I want him to be elite so bad that it couldn't possibly be that good. I mean, but, it's it's like pretty close to Russell Westbrook numbers, which is yeah. like which is a statement on within itself on Russell Westbrook Russ, uh his insanity. Yeah. How good he is. Um 23.5 points per game this year, 10 assists per game, 8 rebounds per game basically. Like Russell Westbrook's a freak within itself, but yeah, if Giannis is able to put up like ten rebounds a game and eight assists, like he that he's basically Magic Johnson reincarnated. Which yeah, and I mean even like the rebounds, it's like, I mean, you don't even have to factor that in. Like if you if your point guard is giving you twenty and seven, those are elite scoring point guard numbers. Like that is a that's a point share of minimum thirty four points per game, not even factoring the other things you're doing on the floor. And he creates this very unique pick and roll nightmare situation where he can be either side of the pick and roll, where he just kind of needs to learn how to shoot more. But like he's still what seventeen years old. <laughs> I think uh, I think there's still time for Giannis to learn how to shoot better. You know, the thing with the Bucks though is that they're stuck in this weird in between place, and that. They're like both committed to the traditional like inside post game with Greg yeah. Monroe, uh, but they have also got this guy, this what do you do with him guy, Giannis, where he yeah. can stretch the floor, but he can also be this this traditional small forward as well. Like and I, I think the problem is that they've sort of misguidedly, but also interestingly, for a, you know, they're a franchise that doesn't exactly. Um, demand expectations at this point right so they've got some time to play around but um their whole team is kind of what do you do with them you right. know I like mean, is a tweener michael carter williams is kind of a fading former phenom like i mean and it was, he only got a ton of points and was putting up a stat line because he was yeah, in Philadelphia. it was just like a good good player bad team thing yeah. and it was also just like somebody has to score the points it was like how ricky yeah. davis used to score like 20 points a game for the celtics somebody has to yeah. score them yeah, um, and you know Greg Monroe is kind of like a weird middling. He's kind of yeah, he's he's really a more of a four, like an offensive four, ideally. And he's not good enough defensively to be to to guard the other fives. Yeah, right. Although offensively he can contend. Yeah, and the thing is, like the five position is just a weird place in the NBA right now, and that guys yeah. like DeAndre and Hassan Whiteside. Uh, are very much kind of fading out, not yeah. necessarily in terms of their production, but their use usability and whether they're useful at all on a team. Yeah, I mean, on a team, yeah, guys like that without good 
support really can't do. Like, if you put DeAndre on a team where he doesn't have a Chris Paul, he's not really DeAndre anymore. Right. He's just he's, a guy putting up a, a ton of blocks. Block. He's right. a crazy shot blocker. You know. And I think that to a certain extent has has been overstated uh, how useful shot blocking is because I think Hassan Whiteside is also a guy who puts up a ton of shot blocks, but like how useful. Is he he, a- yeah, he's an interesting player where, like, obviously this year he's, like, he's kind of a, a five-star value because he I'm pretty sure his contract was, like, 900K this right. year. Like, you're loving what you're getting from him. But now – He's going to get paid this offseason. He's going to probably get a max deal from a desperate team. And you think of – Which is nuts because he was out of the NBA two years ago. Yeah, and if you think of what he actually is as a player, this is a guy who – I'm pretty sure he had – did he have over 200 blocks this year? Uh, I can look that up. Yeah, he might have had over 200 blocks. If not, he was close to 200 blocks. I mean he's and averaging two, close to four blocks a game, which is I'm nuts. pretty sure, and I'm going to be embarrassed if I'm wrong, he has under 30 career assists. Career. And I'm, he had, he's, av- he's averaging half an assist a game. Yeah. he The guy gets – Roughly, if my mental math is correct, six to seven times the amount of blocks as assists. The guy's not a productive member of your offense. He doesn't create points. Yeah, and the th- and it, it, that's fine when you've got still a very spry aging D Wade and a spry aging Bosch and a kind of a middling version of Goron and Luan like, Dang in a yeah. in a very weird mid career uh, mid to end career kind of place. Yeah. But when, when we like, let's say Hassan um, goes to the Lakers or something like that on like a crazy deal, like what's he actually going to bring to the table? Is he just immediately going to turn into like a Hibbert, you know, and right. just like turn into a tree that can't really do anything else? I mean, Hibbert was weird just because like the fact that he was so good he was pretty damn good defensively. Um, yeah. And people just kind of overlooked that the fact that he didn't really create points at all. And then once he got to the Lakers, that like really, really, really stood out. And yeah. they just kind of became useless. But like for me, Andrew Bogut's like a perfect center in today's NBA. And yeah. that he's he self- do exactly what you need. He, he does exactly what you need defensively and exactly what you need offensively. He's a good enough rebounder and he is able to create points. Uh, for a center who is seven feet tall and not very mobile. Yeah, and again, a guy who is maximized by his his supporting cast. Sure. However, he's a guy very much to the contrary of Hassan Whiteside, who actually like he sees the floor as a center. You know, right. he's by no means an offensively skilled player. Oftentimes, he takes like three shots or less. If you're looking at the box scores for Golden State, which is kind of a beautiful thing that that team works that well, that you can have a starter playing over 20 minutes, not even take a shot, and you win by like 30, right. that your center's content to pass. He's attempting but, four shots a game. Yeah. Like, that's pretty crazy for a guy who's seven feet tall. Just four shots per game. Don't even need to use him. And I think that's also like a testament to Draymond Green just being this like bizarre player that we've just never kind of. S- you can't put Draymond Green in just like a mold. Yeah, there have been there have been inferior approximations of what he is before, but never truly what he's become. Because so quickly in the past two years. Because I don't think player efficiency rating encapsulates how good Draymond Green is. Like he's putting him a nineteen point three one per this year, but fourteen points per game, nine and a half rebounds, and he led the team with seven point four assists. 
and he's a power forward center hybrid weird Swiss Army but, knife. But really, he can like if you really needed him to, he could play a game at two. Right. He's comfortable at three, and then he obviously could, four is what we would what people traditionally, would call his ideal position. Even though he's only like six foot six. Right. Six foot six seven. Six. He's listed at six uh, foot seven, but he can also play center, which is just like, yeah. how can somebody six foot seven guard centers? And yeah. he does it well. Well, yeah, and he does it better. And that was kind of the discussion a while ago, where it's like, oh, LeBron can do that, and then it kind of proved that like that wasn't the best move to have LeBron do that. But now you have a guy because LeBron's who's at his best. Created this new niche of the the I, like just the killer lineup right. with Draymond at center. And you're playing all small ball with no one. I mean, Clay's the tallest guy in the lineup. Is that right? I'm pretty sure on the killer lineup, Clay is the tallest guy on the floor. Clay's six foot seven, so like him and Draymond are both the tallest guys. Yeah. Because LeBron's at his best when he's a facilitator, uh, yeah. and he's six foot eight, uh, which is, I mean, LeBron's obviously like a physical freak and is, but Draymond's an inch shorter than him, and he can play center and be a facilitator in this like weird Swiss army knife. Uh, yeah. And I'm and it also, it makes you think like such a perfect storm for golden state to be able to assemble that team at the same time. Like, cause all this type of stuff, all this golden state love has created a lot more anti LeBron sentiment where people are kind of starting to try to imply that like Curry is the better overall player now, which like at this moment, yes, he you probably want- is. Yeah, at this exact moment, yes. But people are trying to say that in like, like all time legacy, the course of the career, all time legacy, Curry's already better, and it's just like no, come on, no. LeBron's always LeBron's always had to be the guy. Nothing fell in his lap. The thing with the thing with Curry is like if he sustains this for another six, he has like sustained this for another like six years, like this level of high intensity, high quality play, in order to like even to start to be in the discussion of LeBron James. Because yeah. LeBron James has been the best player in the NBA since he was, like, 20 years old. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he, I mean, well, not quite 20 because there was, you know, back in, like, 07 through 09, most people would say that Kobe, Kobe was the best. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, he's been in that discussion since then. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you could you could make a convincing argument that LeBron was better than Kobe back in Kobe's prime. Right. and. Yeah. Your Kobe lovers would obviously very much disagree. Yeah, and people who valued like you know rings over everything, stuff like that, like proven winning, you know. But you can, I mean, that's just a that argument's out the window. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that argument's out the window now. LeBron has two rings, but that whole the Cleveland situation, um, it that that's it's just not going to work. Yeah, I mean, the Cleveland situation period is is just kind of a nightmare. That like, I mean, it's just like a worse replay of. The first two Miami years, plus the fact that you have just these two unbeatable specters in the West of the Spurs and the Warriors. Like, you just like, I just, I mean, obviously, I can't imagine a scenario where the Cavs could beat the Warriors in a seven game series. Like, this year, that might, I mean, that could conceivably end in a sweep. It wouldn't because I think LeBron would have like a freak game and like preserve it. But I also can't really imagine a scenario where the Spurs lose to the Cavs, you know? Right. I think it's very interesting in general to kind of compare. 
I mean, this is my one of my big basketball reference points is looking at the Celtics and the Big Three era and looking at how Danny H constructed that team around Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, and Kevin Garnett and what kind of roles they played on that squad. And that, you know, Garnett was obviously a really, really talented and skilled offensive player, but really his major role on that team was to be that defensive anchor and yeah. be the guy who made everybody better on the defensive end. Uh, and on Miami, kind of Chris Bosch to a lesser extent kind of played that role at a much lesser intensity and he was able to be more of a Swiss army knife. And we've talked about this before, yeah. but more offensively polished, far less of a defender. Right. Yeah. But he kind of played that same gluey type role that Garnett did in a much, oh, yeah. they would And even a, this year, they wouldn't be anywhere without him. Right. Uh, and you know, I think Pierce and LeBron have a lot of similarities, not in terms of like their talent level, obviously, but kind of the roles that they played on that Miami team. Uh, and Ray Allen was never the guy. He was never the number one option on that Celtics team. Yeah. Uh, and he was never asked to be. Uh, and I think Dwayne Wade kind of the Miami Heat teams, those Heat teams, especially with that first championship, those were Wade's teams. Yeah. Uh, that, that first championship in the big three era. But that changed with the second championship, I think, with LeBron kind of taking over. But if you look at this current Cleveland team and how the team is just constructed, Kyrie and LeBron are kind of like they duel over who should be handling the ball, and Kyrie's yeah, they're way, not compatible. They're just not compatible players in that they don't complement each other at all. Yeah, because Kyrie, then, Kyrie's trying to do too much with the basketball. And then Kevin Love's also kind of incompatible with LeBron too, because it's like Kevin Love's not a glue guy. Yeah, and LeBron is. I mean, obviously LeBron's a small forward, but if you have to put him at like his most dangerous position, it's a stretch four. And then it's like, well, okay, that's a stretch for who's handling. Well, it's it's a stretch for who's also like handling the ball. Yeah, like that. Yeah, and they and you've seen like Carmelo try and arguably fail to do that. But like, what what's the point of having Kevin Love, who like is the stretch or at least was like the stretchiest true big man in the league? And then you put him with LeBron, and it, it as we've seen, it doesn't work. And it's kind of like, and there's part too of that, much stretch. And we, yeah, it's too much stretch, but like also it raises the question, which I know Simmons has been saying for years is like, was Kevin Love even that good in the first place or was he just on the Timberwolves? You know? Right. I think Kevin Love is pretty good. I think Kevin Love. I think he's pretty good by all accounts too, but I don't think he was ever the kind of top five player or top top 10 player. Yeah, that he broke into the discussion of being. Because, I mean, because LeBron at his best and Kevin Love at their best, like, kind of occupy the same role in that Kevin Love is obviously a better rebounder than LeBron is, but they're yeah. both occupying, like, the perimeter uh, and also, like, being an option in the post as well. And Kevin yeah. Love has just, like, been relegated to being a jump sh- a, a jump shooting three-point shooter, which is... Yeah, I mean, he's become, like, this kind of, like, pick-and-poppy type guy, which, which is, is, like... Why are you paying a guy a max or near max salary to do that? And then also that team has Tristan Thompson on like a fifteen million dollar a which year is, contract, which is so bad. Like it's just a so plus bad. Defending undersized center, like it's just a complete mess. It's so bad that like Tristan Thompson's a fine player, and he's yeah. a, he's a he's, he's a, a good NBA player, above average in fact. But a, on that contract, it makes you're no not sense. Getting good value. It makes yeah. like I thought Tristan Thompson was a weird pick to begin with in 2011 when he was picked fourth by the Cavs out yeah. of Texas, 
And he's like defied my expectations in that he's become like a pretty pretty decent center in the NBA and he's uh a good rebounder and he's just kind of like a solid guy. He's uh he's like a glorified Kendrick Perkins in many ways. Yeah. Uh <laughs> well, wait, yeah. We can say he's a far more talented basketball player than Kendrick Perkins. <laughs> he's a much more talented Kendrick Perkins, but he fills that kind of same role. Yeah. Yeah, it's a niche. But the, a very expensive niche for the current Cavs. It just I don't know what they're going to do with that situation. Like Wait, well, yeah, he signed for like 3 more years. I don't like I don't think LeBron is going to leave Cleveland. I would think. I kind of hope he does just cuz it would be fun. It would be really funny. It would be really funny. Yeah. But what is he going to do? It's just such a bizarre like it almost in hindsight seems like just a just a lack of planning to create a team where like like when you have LeBron on your team or any sort of league star like you don't you're just not going to have that much money to fill in the nooks and crannies so why are you filling 15 million of it with Tristan Thompson and the it thing is doesn't like make any sense. everybody knows LeBron is the GM of the Cavs everybody knows that <laughs> yeah that's true that's not a question in Miami you had Pat Riley like LeBron is not going to overrun Pat Riley that's not going to yeah. happen and Pat Riley made some very, very astute financial and player personnel decisions when he was running. Well, yeah, and, and and Pat Riley without LeBron is still the three seed in the East. Right, that team is still really good. Yeah, uh, and could, and let's just say could beat the Cavs in a seven game series. That's a discussion. It's not out of the question. Yeah, because that they're I, certainly not favored, but it's going to be a fun series if it happens. I love Ger- Gerald Green is like so much fun to watch off the bench. Yeah, he's a good player to have on that team for sure. And That's as a, as a Celtics a fan, as a Celtics fan, it's like it it hurts me to see like Gerald Green being like good after he like left the NBA and came back and has kind of rejuvenated Greer. But he's he's so athletic and he's so fun to watch yeah. off the bench. Yeah. Um, that it's so I always forget that Amari is on the Heat. Yeah, I forget that too. I mean, he also like. He, like, took the game off to go to Kobe's last game, right? I'm sure the Heat had a game simultaneously, and Amari was just in L.A. to, like, congratulate Kobe. <laughs> like, on the Heat, but he's not. Like, it's just bizarre. I mean, I remember being excited when he, like, it seems like 40 years ago that Amari signed with the Knicks on that five-year deal as, like, the consolation prize and then had an MVP first half, and then kind of after that, the Knicks... Well, show, they got, as we know it restarted. Well, they got Carmelo, which started yeah. like, yeah, which kind of which, Mojo. Oh god, which started like, which just start. Carmelo's just not good. Like he's good, but he's not. And the the funny thing is his his game is almost evolving now, but it's just it's it's arguably too little, too late. But also, like he's gonna have to accept a smaller role if he ever really wants to win a championship realistically with who he like he can't be a 20 million dollar guy and be on a championship team he'd have to make some sort of concession right because if let's just like hypothetically he could have taken a smaller salary and lebron could have taken a smaller salary because lebron and carmelo are really really good friends they could have both taken really small salaries and created a big four in miami that was that was like a, a theory that was out there yeah uh carmelo's just not Carmelo's really good at basketball, but he's not—he's not a guy that you're at any point could have built 
uh, a franchise. Yeah, he's around. a guy nobody wants to play one on one. Right. But really, like, I mean, the commitment to the Knicks is like, it's almost just an image thing for him at this point. It seems because it's just like, it's not going to go anywhere until he's not there anymore, or until he magically has like a six million dollar a year cap hit and they can do something else. <laughs> which, spoiler alert, not going to happen. And. Uh, I'm just worried about Chris Stops, man. I mean, I'm not worried, but I... I just hope he gets a good coach in there. Yes, I do hope that they don't... And I mean, they've got some time to get him a good good coach. And they will. And I mean, who knows with the Knicks? Like, I can see a scenario where, like, the whole thing turns into enough of a hot seat where Chris Stapps eventually gets traded. Like, it could happen. And they could get a ton. In, and terms then of, I in terms also, of trade value, oh, yeah. Kristaps is probably top five, top ten in terms of trade value in the NBA right now. Oh, yeah, top five in the league in terms of trade value, certainly, because he's on a rookie contract. And Easy. and just like the potential is – there's not a player – you. I think I think a very interesting gauge for this is whether or not you can play – you can create a player in NBA 2K in my cannot. career. <laughs> That's like Kristaps Porzingis. Spoiler and, alert, it's impossible. You can't. You can't create a seven-foot-three – rebounding three-point shooting center like that just you can't do it yeah and i have and i'm i'm anxious about it too because he did kind of start to fall off after like his original really good first couple months but i mean he's 20 years old so yo thanasis antetokounmpo should (laughs) should recruit Giannis to new york that's such a weird a weird instance of like a guy just being a name and at the same time, like, not really having an important name, you know? Thanasis <laughs> Antetokounmpo. Thanasis is just the Seth Curry to Giannis's staff. Seth Curry had a good couple weeks for the he Kings. Actually, yeah, he did. But, again, like, you can't, like, Obviously. stats on the Kings mean nothing to me. Yeah. I got to see him play on a franchise that gives at least a single before I can put any meaning behind it. My dream scenario is Giannis and Kristaps team up. I would love it. There's nothing better. I've done that in 2K before. Spoiler alert, we won 68 games. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah. I'm just excited to see what the playoffs turn out to be. Because, I mean, the first couple of rounds are going to be kind of a... Yeah, and as they kind of always are. It's kind of the one the one problem with the NBA is that the first few rounds of playoffs aren't competitive, the, except for when the Grizzlies beat the Spurs, or when or when Oklahoma City loses. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean that's just kind of an issue within uh, the NBA as a as a structure that the gap between the top teams and the middle teams yeah. that are just is just way too big. And that's just what, that just comes with the territory of being a sport where there's five players out there at once, you know. But holy just crap, like, am I excited to see Kawhi go against Steph Curry? Yeah, that's that is fun. that is going to that is. Going I mean, hopefully to, we get it. Yes, you know, hopefully we. Kawhi, I just freaking love Kawhi Leonard so much. Yeah, Kawhi is like the most understated star in the NBA, and it pisses me off to no end when people try to make make these like he doesn't score enough arguments for like why he's not an elite like elite elite top five player in the NBA. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, he only scores twenty one points per game or whatever. But he is the best on ball on a Popovich team, and he's the best on ball defender in the NBA. And it's oh, not yeah. even it's not really even that close. Like Avery Bradley can give him somewhat of a run for his money. Well, and Draymond. Yeah. And, and Draymond. But 
I mean, Kawhi is just... Yeah. Did you see the vine from a couple nights ago of Lance Stevenson trying to get open against Kawhi? Yeah. I mean, Lance is also just a bum at this point. He actually, Lance was pretty good this year. I kind of take that back, but still, not a not a trustworthy guy. Have you seen the the cartoon on YouTube of the San Antonio Spurs like being this like spy team? No, I have. It's called Spurs Special Forces. Go look it up after we're done recording. It's by this guy named Matt Hill. It is literally the funniest thing I have ever watched. It is hysterical. What 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 happens in it? <laughs> well, you'll have to go watch for yourself. But basically, oh. it's it's basically Tim Duncan, Monty Ginobili, Tony Parker, Popovich, and Kawhi sometimes makes an appearance, and they're basically a special spy forces team, and it's amazing. Pop quiz: Who's the best player on the San Antonio Spurs? Isn't it Kawhi? Boris Diaw. <laughs> if we want to talk about the most fun players in the NBA and also overseas players, I feel like that's a good place to end this. Uh, Taylor, <laughs> thanks for coming <laughs> onto the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I, fingers crossed. I think we're going to have a guest next week, but if not, you'll be getting me uh, more of me and Taylor. Uh, Ooh boy, aren't you Dr- lucky. Drilling over the NBA and Major League Baseball. Oh boy, listeners. If you uh if this is your first time listening to the show, I'm sorry. Uh <laughs> please head over to iTunes and uh and uh hit over hit the subscribe button, leave us a rating over there. Uh you can trash Taylor as much as you want. Uh but please leave us a good rating otherwise. And uh, follow me on Twitter at at Center Tay and on Medium at at Center Tay. Yeah, Taylor's uh Taylor's an interesting follow on Twitter, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at I am June Lee. Uh, I'll be doing some interesting stuff in the uh, next coming months. Uh, going to New York for a, a secret top mission this this w- this week that I'm very, very, very excited about and very excited to talk to all of you guys about at some point in the near future. Uh, But uh, until next week, uh, thanks again to SeatGeek for sponsoring the show. Uh, And I think that's a wrap. We'll see you guys in the next one. Your love is simple, baby. You've been on my, yeah, yeah, yeah. Since you're watching me, I do it all the time, yeah, yeah. Since you say you love me, it's just a fire, yeah, yeah. It's just a fire.